Let's see if I can shoot this across the room. Okay. Oh, shit. Woo! Woo! Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. This episode, I've got a great long-form interview for you with my good friend, Eric Holtman, who is a movie expert and a bit of a cocktail enthusiast himself. And we thought it would be kind of fun to take a few iconic 20th century films and examine them through the lens of the cocktail. In particular, the French 75, the White Russian, and the Singapore Sling. But before we jump into this interview, I wanted to quickly apprise you of a couple events where you can hang out with Modern Bar Cart here in the month of October 2018. This Saturday, October 13th, you'll find us at the Urban Market at Maryfield, held outside at the Mosaic District in beautiful Fairfax, Virginia. We're going to be sampling and selling all of our excellent products there, so be sure to swing by the booth, say hey, maybe grab a couple cocktail supplies for your weekend cocktail projects. Then later this month on Friday, October 26th and Saturday the 27th, we'll have a booth at the Taste of DC held at RFK Stadium, which is conveniently located here in DC right off the blue, orange, and silver line stadium armory metro for anybody coming in from out of town we'll have some cool new products available for you at that event and hopefully i'll be able to hit the culinary stage and demo some cocktail recipes and techniques ticketing information for that event can be found at thetasteofdc.org because we go way in depth on several cocktail recipes in this episode, we're going to skip our featured cocktail segment and dive right in to the show. So break out your 3D glasses, turn off your cell phone ringers, see vous play, pass the freaking popcorn, and enjoy this interview star-studded for your pleasure with my friend, Eric Holtzman. Eric Holtzman, welcome to the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. Glad to be here. We're sitting here at Casa de Koslik, and the goal for this evening is to just have a little chat, go through three iconic cocktails, and kind of talk about some of the movies that they were portrayed in, and just kind of, you know, weave that narrative of the cocktail and, and the film. And I myself am not particularly well-versed in, in film. I never took a film class of any sort, and I don't really even consider myself a movie buff. But you are a different animal. So can you tell people who are listening how you got to be so well-versed in film? Starting, well, frankly, ever since uh, childhood... I had this childhood dream that I wanted to one day be an actor in movies. Like that was, that was a freaking dream. Like that's what I wanted to do. I would actually watch movies growing up. And even after having just seen them once, I could recite back whole lines of dialogue. I could recount whole scenes. I had this just this weird, crazy memory for it, um, for just movie quotes. And 
and doing even uh, kind of goofy impressions or, or impersonations, what have you, or mimicking characters or accents or uh-huh. voices that I saw uh, in movies. Every, I mean, all kinds of stuff. We're talking... Uh, I was raised personally. I guess I owe a lot of this to my dad, but a lot of comedies. We're talking like your Mel Brooks movies, um, your old uh, Airplane, uh, Hot yeah. Shot, stuff like that. And then, uh, but also um, dramas, musicals, war movies. I mean, literally every genre except I don't really mess with horror. I will confide that to you all. Mm. Not really a horror movie guy. But yeah, so long story short, grew up with movies. I am definitely kind of a movie buff um, while having not necessarily uh, gotten the designation of being a critic. I'm not a film critic. I'm not in any way uh, professional about this or certified in any way, but I'd like to think I'm at least a sliver of an authority figure on the subject. Mm-hmm. So let's put it that way. And then you're also kind of like in that acting sphere. You and I also have a bit of a shared kind of pastime. You a little bit more of late than me, but we're we're both kind of improvers. We're both, yeah, we're both improvisers. So yeah, kind of at different times, I guess you got started on it more in college, which I only recently found out, mm-hmm. my friend, and that is awesome. Yeah. Um, so yeah, for fun, I actually just stopped uh, a couple months ago. I just wanted to take a little break, but for roughly the past year, uh, pretty much consecutively, I, along with a couple other friends, um, just for fun, took improv comedy classes Mm -hmm. uh, here in the D.C. area and um, really fell in love with it. I mean, it's so much fun, you know, as well as I do. Definitely. And you get to practice all those kind of voice mimicking things with the different characters that you create and then scene setting as well, which is also something that as a film buff, you've kind of have at least like an innate understanding of it kind of running in the background totally so definitely uh those those types of soft skills that you can come into improv with actually really help you to start enjoying it faster i find uh, just being able to think on your feet like that these are definitely skills that improv teaches so anyone can go into improv and kind of learn these skills uh, but it really, it sort of enhances and, and speeds up the learning curve if you can come into it with that sense. So anyway, we're off topic right now. But a bit of a tangent. Yeah, but that's okay. <laughs> Go improv. We are going to jump in and start talking about three movies in this podcast episode. And we're going to, here's, here's going to be kind of the arc of the episode. I'm not going to spill the drinks right now. We're going to kind of ease into the drinks as we talk about the movies, but I will tell all the listeners out there what movies we're going to hit. So first, we're, we're going in a quasi-chronological, not quite chronological, but at the very least, we're starting with the oldest movie. And all of these movies uh, are at least 10 years old, at least 15, at least 10. To I, would say, I would say, I would say, I think we're going on 20 years. I think we're going on 20 years for the most recent one. Yes. Yeah. So 20 years old. Uh, and then the oldest one that we're starting with is is this movie that kind of gets held up as the crown jewel of classic Hollywood. And that movie is, we're going to start off with Casablanca. 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 Cas. Casablanca. Casablanca. Okay. I don't know. Uh, starting off with Casablanca and then moving on to a movie that we all know and love, The Big Lebowski. Dude. Which is about, dude as, buds. about as different from Casablanca as you could be. And then we're going to round it off with a movie that is actually based on a book. 
Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. So those are the three <laughs> that we're going to hit. And I'm just going to let you take it away on Casablanca. And and the question that I, I hope you can maybe start with is, what is so special about this movie? Right. So Casablanca, um, I'll say first and foremost, is by far one of my favorite movies. I mean, all time. Uh, easily top five. I've probably seen it. Oh, I don't know. Probably, probably at least 10 times. And you know, before I die, there might be another hundred in there. It's a movie that I can honestly say I've never gotten tired of. It's one of those movies. Um, I've found that you can rewatch and one of the best parts about every, uh, you know, new time you watch it is you kind of, uh, maybe see something different or see something new that you didn't notice before. And it could be like the slightest little thing, maybe just a little, um, character nuance or, uh, maybe something about what, um, the cocktail or drink that one of the characters is, you know, imbibing, um, all kinds of stuff. We're talking early 1940s, black and white. This is the, uh, you know, this was like the heyday of, of early Hollywood. This was, um, you know, World War II was in its early stages. The mm -hmm. U.S. had, this was shortly after, this is 1942, shortly after Pearl Harbor, at the end of 41, of course. And so the U.S. was just getting into the war. Um, but where it takes place in Casablanca, of course, in North Africa, um, that part of the world had not yet been I guess I should say invaded by the allies. It had not yet not really seen conflict. Yes. Yes. Right. And it was very much under the control of, uh, I may be mispronouncing it, but I believe they called it the, the Vichy, Vichy, uh, Vichy regime, which mm -hmm. is, which was the Vichy French regime, which was essentially allied with, um, the Nazi party and with, with the Axis powers. So for lack of a better word, it almost felt like you could compare it to living in, the colonies of the U.S. during the Revolutionary War. There was, of course, uh, always a large presence of, you know, Vichy or German uh, military and politicians and, and, and government around. But basically, it centers around uh, a man by the name of Rick um, and his cafe, Rick's Cafe. And I should say cafe slash nightclub slash casino. I mean, it's a little bit of everything. There's table games, there's roulette, there's a very lavish bar with seemingly every kind of uh, liquor and champagne cocktail imaginable, very classy. Um, it's the kind of place where everybody who walks through the doors is just dressed to the nines. It's a very nice place. It's, it's kind of formal um, and has a decidedly European vibe about it. And I know I'm kind of going in several different uh uh, directions with this, but that's again another thing I just love so much about this movie is the style of the movie and, and just the character of the setting, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. The character of Rick's Cafe, along with, of course, you know, you don't even really have to mention it, it goes without saying, but the cast is stellar. I mean, Humphrey Bogart, you have Ingrid Bergman. Yeah. So you put a lot of characters, a lot of really interesting characters yeah. in a kind of a special setting, mm -hmm. right? It's this very in-between place, right? It's in between kind of the Axis and the Allies. Right. And you've got American expats. You've got expats from all around the world there. Perhaps not, I wouldn't say refugees, but yeah, people who are trying to flee. Yes. And there's a, there's a great scene, probably my favorite scene in the movie, 
because uh, it's just a very direct symbolism of the the kind of the inner conflict, and it actually breaks out through song, where uh, in um, in the cafe yep. there's a group of German soldiers who start singing kind of like the it's, anthem. It's a very nationalistic anthem that um, was actually popularized during World War One. But yes, a very uh, the famous old German military song. And right. They're kind of singing it very up, uproariously and it kind of kind of obnoxiously so. Um, and, and then kinda, what yeah. happens next? Well, and so then uh, you have essentially the main um, female character, um, Ilsa, in the movie, played by Ingrid Bergman. Um, her current flame when the movie opens um, is a Czech uh, freedom fighter by the name of Victor Laszlo. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, he's a good man. He's a freedom fighter. He's with the resistance, essentially. Um, and he hears this. He hears, you know, this, uh, the Germans singing this, this very nationalistic song. And it just kind of, it just kind of ticks him off. He gets pissed and he, his first thought is to kind of storm down to, uh, the bar's essentially resident, uh, piano player. And also there's a, a, uh, trumpet, uh, horn section and he kind of just defiantly says, uh, play La Marseille, the famous French national anthem. And they kind of hesitate at first, but then Rick, Humphrey Bogart's character, he kind of comes out of the wings, makes eye contact with the band, and literally just gives a simple like nod. Like doesn't say anything, but he, he gives just the, the nod of the head. And then they start playing at La Marseille, and the better part of the bar, like the majority of the bar starts singing almost instantaneously with it. And it very quickly just drowns out. And it's kind of like, I'd like to think, or the way I think about it, almost like just a middle finger to that group of, uh, of Nazi officials who's at the bar, just, you know, kind of, kind of getting drunk, carrying on and singing this at the time, very offensive, uh, and, and threatening songs. Sure. Yeah. So we've, kind of set out these these main characters and the the cocktail that we're going to feature for this is actually a very french cocktail uh it's the french 75 and this is actually a cocktail that i'll let you kind of take us through the the invention of this cocktail and why it has a significance on like the military themes of this movie so while i'm while i mix it up here I'll let you do that. But before I do that, I'm just going to kind of run through the recipe so that folks are aware of it. Yep. Uh, the French 75 is a classic cocktail, and uh, it's not pre-prohibition. Uh, it was invented after the Volstead Act was enacted, uh, which is actually why it was invented in a place that was not the United States. But it comprises of one ounce of gin, uh, one ounce of simple syrup, three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice, and then it's topped off with three ounces of champagne and garnished with a nice lemon twist. So the last thing I will note about the actual technical formulation of this is that it's a stirred cocktail. So you stir the ingredients and then you kind of top it up with that champagne. It's often uh, served in a large champagne glass or in something like a nice highball glass because it's some uh, some champagne glasses tend to be a little bit on the small side. And since you're adding three ounces of champagne to the already kind of, you know, existing ingredients there. Sometimes there's a space issue if you don't have large champagne flutes. So um, we're serving it in a highball glass tonight. And the original formulation, there's kind of like some argumentation over whether to use cognac or gin as the base spirit. As you can imagine, 
cognac is going to yield a slightly mellower, darker characteristic, and gin is just going to be a lot more refreshing. So it being kind of the tail end of summer here in D.C., we're using the gin. Uh, but why don't you take it away, talk about the uh, invention of the cocktail, and then we'll wrap up Casablanca by kind of giving folks maybe not so much a spoiler, but kind of like a sense of, you know, the the arc of the, the, the romance, which is why people really come to it, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. So <clears throat> one of the really interesting things about this cocktail is um, it was invented um, pretty much right, I'd say, basically at the end, right after World War One, the Great War, as it was called then. And it was invented right in Paris, France, actually by a barman, a bar owner, a Scotsman by the name of um, it's Harry McElhone. And I'm sorry if I totally butchered that last name, McElhone, McElhone. But um, this guy, Harry McElhone, he opened up uh, his own bar in Paris, uh, I believe starting, it was either right before 1920 or just in the first couple years of the 1920s. And it was called, um, I, I believe, Harry's New York Bar. Uh, but mostly people would just refer to it as Harry's. And so this, uh, this was, you know, the 1920s, the roaring 20s in Paris, France. Uh, prohibition does not exist here. It is a very um, socially uh, liberal city. It's a fun place to be. It's a very lively place to be. And it's also a city that is no, uh, no stranger to the arts, you know, and, and all that that encompasses, writing, uh, painting, acting, theater, um, all kinds of stuff. And so with that, there were actually a handful of uh, very prolific, whether at the time or, in later, or later in life, uh, prolific American artists, uh, writers, poets, um, actors, actresses, composers who moved to Paris in the 1920s and lived there for a few years. And they all kind of became friends. And you'll recognize some of these names here in a second. I should also note, if you've ever seen the movie Midnight in Paris, recent Owen Wilson uh, Rachel McAdams movie, you'll know exactly what I'm referring to. And that is folks like F. Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald, you know, Ernest Hemingway, Gertrude Stein, very long way of saying Harry's was a bar that was in fact frequented by all these guys um, all the time. It was, it was a hot spot, especially for uh, American expats and kind of just all matter of international celebrities that were passing through, uh, you know, downtown Paris and at the height of the, the roaring twenties. And, that's where they'd go to get their drinks. That's where they'd go to get their cocktails because, um, you know, frankly, Harry and his staff never disappointed. And I'm not sure if it was necessarily Harry himself or his staff, but I believe it was Harry himself who thought up what is now the French 75. Cause mentioned the ingredients, and basically it started originally with that kind of champagne base. Speaking of which, let's get, the, let's get a little champagne let's, let's do on, that on Mike. Wait for it. Let's see if I can shoot this across the room. Okay. Oh, shit. Woo! Woo! Take your head off, man. But, uh, yeah, so basically a champagne uh, base, but he wanted to, of course, kick it up a notch, give it a little something. It can't just be, you know, a glass of champagne. He wants to turn this into a memorable and unique cocktail. And so the story goes, um, he added specifically, he chose to add gin as the other main um uh spirit the other the other main alcohol base and the story goes the name came from it being served to someone and you know they took a took a sip of it took a took a swig 
and it was just really it just really packed a punch a little like ooh like you know make you make you make you make you stop and come to and um they compared it to getting shelled by a french 75 millimeter field gun which was kind of the mainstay artillery piece of the french army during world war one so you've got one in front of you yeah. just just prepared so don't you okay. see how i did let me see how let me see all right Woo! yeah it's true Refreshing. Let's see. It, I'm, take, it's true. I'm just gonna take a little sip. Oh I've yeah, yeah, doing, yeah. I've been doing 30 days off the booze. Oh well, there you go. A little sip, a little sipperoonie. Oh, that is refreshing. I'll give it that. Oh yeah. So right, packs a punch, but yes, very refreshing, especially this time of year when it's warm out, springtime, summertime, early fall. Funny enough, though, on just a bit of a side tangent, um, Harry, in. Uh, in that same, that very same bar, Harry's, uh, I think it's that American bar or New York bar, Harry's New York bar. I think mm-hmm. it went by frankly, a couple different names, but it was an iteration of one or the both of those. Um, he also invented several other cocktails that we all definitely know to this day. And I'm sure you all know, just to name a few, um, the bloody Mary, was invented there. I believe also the sidecar, mm-hmm. the story goes. And I think I'm forgetting of a couple others, but uh, surely a fair amount of cocktails that have certainly held up over time were, uh, in fact, um, invented, thought up, first concocted, what have you, at um, Harry's New York Bar or Harry's American Bar. Yep. Um, and, and that's actually the genesis of there's actually two schools of sidecar. There's It's either the Paris and the London or the Paris and the New York, and this is the provenance of that, right? So the Paris version is is the kind of Harry's bar take on it, and then yes. somebody else spun it a different way. Really, it just boils down to what ratios of sour to sweet to booze you're using. Sorry, so we've got the French 75. The movie we've been talking about is Casablanca, and one of the great things to me about the movie is that it's a love story that for various reasons, and each person viewing the movie has kind of different reactions to it but but it doesn't work out in the end in at least in in the way that a tidy love story would work out in the end so can you tell us basically who the lovers in question are and you know just your thoughts on on the the ending of the movie yeah so the, the two main characters um on which the story really centers around are of course rick humphrey bogart's character rick the proprietor of the in his own words gin joint this is his world like this is this is his house and um on one you know fateful evening seemingly just a regular evening at his bar who strolls in but a former flame by the name of ilsa um, and this is ingrid bergman this character. is ingrid bergman's character yes another very famous actress of the time and she strolls in with uh with another lover i i um the aforementioned uh, Czech freedom fighter by the name of Victor Laszlo is his character's name. She and and Victor are at the bar both nights. They're actually um, they're trying to get out of Casablanca, kind of on that. Uh, again, you know, I don't know if it was necessarily refugee status, but they're trying to flee. Um, he's got to, he's got work to do. In yes, the exactly. Um, back to back to mainland Europe. So with that, you kind of have. Rick reminiscing and and remembering that 
he really loves this woman. And I think at times you get a sense of that from Ilsa as well, from her character as well. And there's a few kind of flashback scenes of time they spent together in Paris shortly before the Nazis marched mm -hmm. into and uh, marched into Paris and invaded the whole of France. So what's the what's yeah. the kind of like the moment that the conclusion of the movie hinges on, right? So we've got these characters, they kind of rehash their old love. The current conflict is very apparent, right? These get these folks want to get out. He Rick kind of wants him to 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 stay. Uh or or the, at least uh Ingrid Bergman's character. But what's the what's the thing that happens that kind of sets up the ending of the movie that makes it such a classic. It essentially becomes very clear that she is very much in love with, with her new flame with Victor Laszlo and Rick just, he essentially, while it takes him, you know, the better part of the movie, he comes to accept it and he realizes, I guess I should say further realizes cause it's not like he was ever oblivious, but it becomes increasingly apparent you know, the gravity of the whole situation. And um, even in just that seemingly one or two days in which the movie takes place, you get the feeling that things are really about to go down. It's really about to get worse. And um, on an international level. On an international level, exactly. And for Victor and Elsa, it's getting out of Casablanca. And Rick accepts that. And he ultimately comes to terms with the fact that he's got to find a way to, to help them. Mm -hmm. And um, it ends with uh, Victor and Elsa ultimately getting out of Casablanca. And funny enough, uh, Rick doesn't move. He the the film ends with him still there. Uh, doesn't look like he's going to leave. I don't believe he has any intention of leaving. So it's kind of an interesting uh, end to the movie where he's let this you know this this former flame go. But he stays. He he has no intention of leaving, um, and y you know you can take it any which way that maybe he's a stubborn character or he's um, too proud to you know leave leave his own cafe, leave leave his um, his place. I think another reading could just as easily be he realized that she was going to be happier with this other guy, and so right. he kind of did the the adult or the yes. kind caring thing. Um, but I, I think the one last point that I'll make is that this movie came out at a time when the United States was kind of debating about whether to enter the war. It didn't come out at that point, but, but the narrative of the movie was, it was set like just a couple years before when the U S was still kind of on the fence. And right. so the, the decision to act and the decision to help these people, continue to be together and also to help this freedom fighter go and do his work right. and actually assist in that was kind of like this not very thinly veiled metaphor for the u.s like hey come and help out over mm. here in europe guys uh you know kind of do your part and so that's also an interesting part of the movie i think literally i could be off by a few months but i think literally within a month or two of when casablanca premiered the u.s along with our allies, the UK, invaded uh, North Africa. They actually, one of the landings was Casablanca itself. It was mm -hmm. a major port town. So there you have it, folks. Casablanca. Casablanca. Why don't you take another healthy, healthy yeah, sip of that from oh, 75? I shall. I shall. Uh, we're going we're gonna to get you a little, a little uh, tipsy here. All right. So we're departing from this very classic 
very well respected and kind of like, how do I put it? It's like the filet mignon of movies to something that is more akin to like a pint of ice cream in in many ways in terms of in terms of like the the tone and the what you might even refer to as the nutrition of the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you so, could say. So that movie is The Big Lebowski and I really enjoy this movie. It, Love it. it it's one of those movies where the the plot is maybe less important than some of the dialogue and like really the enjoyment of the movie comes from the relationships of the characters and and the way that they kind of act toward one another and try to solve a problem together. It, it, another movie like that more recently might have been like The Hangover. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll get into a little of the plot here, but I, an, a really interesting way that I've heard the movie described is it's a guy trying to solve the problem of a rug that got peed on. I love that. <laughs> like that's just like an encapsula- encapsulation of the movie. So can you give us like literally a 30 second, just very brief plot snapshot of this movie in the most general terms and we can zoom in if we need to? I'll certainly try because there it, it's definitely, you know, to your point, it's a movie with a lot going on. And uh, a lot of times when it comes to, you know, those various scenes or characters or kind of uh, predicaments that they get themselves into... I mean, these are like ridiculous, ridiculous storylines, ridiculous characters in ridiculous situations, but very much hyperbole, very much. But also that being said, all the more hilarious to watch. But anyways, uh, in a nutshell, the plot, the best I can do is basically and kind of how I interpret it is it follows, you know, uh, the dude Lebowski, Jeff, Jeff Bridges, Jeff Bridges character. Exactly. And but is the dude Lebowski? So <laughs> I think Lebowski's the dude or no, he's no, Leba- the dude. Leba- and, <laughs> but he's dealing with Lebowski, uh, this very kind of, um, Wealthy. old, old eccentric, uh, multimillionaire in, in, in LA and who has had, um, his kind of, uh, what do I say? Like, like, like sugar bunny, like little, uh, had young 20 something, a young Tara Reed, a young girlfriend, uh, kidnapped by, um, uh, at first, I guess, unknown assailants. And it kind of interwines with the dude having his living room rug peed on by a couple, you know, criminals, thugs, a couple, thugs. couple hired thugs who were breaking into his place thinking that he was that millionaire. He was Mr. Lebowski. Mm-hmm. He's not. Sure, that's his last name, but no one ever calls him that. He's just the dude and the dude abides. Right. So, so, so they look him up in the yellow pages essentially. Yeah, right, they, right. They, it's, they, it's, a, they, it's a case of mistaken identity. And what mm-hmm. then ensues is this whole long... A kind of contorted web of of scenarios and characters and and kind of uh, ridiculous crime where the dude gets swept up because mistaken the real identity. mistaken identity yeah. and the real Lebowski millionaire Lebowski um, learns of him brings him in meets him tells him of the situation and kind of tries to get him to get you know get his get his girl back. Um, right, which is slightly ridiculous in and of itself. Right, exactly. And uh, he's 
But instead of in, the interesting thing is, so like there's this concept in in storytelling and, and filmmaking. Usually, it's called the suspension of disbelief. Yeah. And the thing is, if you're telling an effective story, it means if you tell the reader or the viewer something, they should believe you. They should be able to, even if it's like a fantasy story, they should be like, you know, even if you're like, and then a, an elf walked in, they'd be like, okay, I'll believe. Like I can suspend my disbelief because it seems like there's a logic to this story. It's coherent. In this story, they almost go the opposite way. Instead of being like, well, this is an unrealistic situation, they double down and they make it oh, yeah. more ridiculous by adding ridiculous characters. So let's cover the cast real quick. We've got the dude who is Jeff Bridges. Jeff Bridges, amazing, iconic, hilarious. And you've then, got his best friend, Smokey, played by John Goodman. Mm-hmm. And then a, a great cast of supporting characters, you know, including everyone from Steve, Steve Buscemi. Buscemi in a very kind of, uh, uh, it's, it's a role that I think is, is constantly... Um, constantly referenced and a particular quote that's often quoted is whenever John Goodman and it happened several times in the movie is John Goodman's character you know Steve Buscemi he he speaks up or he has something to say or makes a comment and John Goodman's always just like Steve Buscemi's character's name Donnie John Goodman's like shut the fuck up Donnie yep Donnie you're out of your element you're out of your fucking element pardon my French but it's just it's this iconic line I've said that myself to probably all my friends at some point. Um, but then you also have John Turturro and this kind of weird, almost kind of unexplained, seemingly very random role, but it always cracks me up. He's this other kind of uh, competitive bowler in this bowling mm-hmm. league that they all frequent and play in a league in. Jesus. And his name is literally, yeah, Jesus. Uh, I mean, <laughs> spelled, yeah, J-E-S-U-S. He's like, nobody fucks with the Jesus. Mm-hmm. And it's a John Turturro. And then uh, you have Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's, he's the assistant, he's, he's the assistant to, the, to the big Lebowski. To, to the real Mr. Lebowski. And I forget the name of the actor who plays the real Lebowski, but mm-hmm. he uh, was a, a famous actor back in the day. You have a young Tara Reid of, of course, American Pie fame, among others. And, um, and I'm surely forgetting a few more. Peter Stormare is, is one of the criminals. Um, again, a guy who you... Probably don't recognize that name, but Google it. You'll recognize the face. He's mm-hmm. everywhere. So great cast. Yeah. So I don't think we need to spend too, too long on the plot because basically what happens is a bunch of weird, like a bunch of like a series of unfortunate events going from place to place, trying to in a very loose and intoxicated way fix this problem mm-hmm. and manage the personalities right you've got donnie who's just a fuck up yep. and then you've got Smokey, who's like this he's like a burned out vietnam vet oh but yeah he's not burned out in his energy levels which is always he's always at a he's always on he's got an opinion on everything oh yeah and he very like, loud he tries to flex his vocabulary a lot as well yeah. um and then you've got these other kind of element. There's the one of my favorite like little parts of the film is the nihilists, the East yes, Germans yep. who it, come which in. Peter Stormare is kind of the leader of that group, but right. exactly keep yeah. And and so at one point the dude is in his baths. He's like trying to like just chill out for a minute and relax and try and figure things out. And another recurring theme in the movie is people just keep barging into his apartment and like shaking him down. So the East these East Germans walk in. They're dressed hilariously. That's and great. he's he's holding a, a ferret 
Yeah, and yeah. They, he drops the ferret into the bathtub. It's a great scene where where uh, Jeff dude, Bridges is just like flailing about, like, oh my god, what? No. And it, a great line of like when he sees them all walk up, he goes, "Nice marmot, <laughs> nice marmot, <laughs> nice man." Marmot, man. And then he's uh, literally smoking like, yeah, I'm rolling a doobie in the bathtub. He's just got a roach. He's got it between a set of tweezers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so. Let's talk about the cocktail in this movie, and then yeah. we can maybe return to some of our favorite quotes. I've got a quote that I love from the movie. Oh, yeah, no, um, we'll, we'll break those out. But yes, the the iconic cocktail, literally, if, if there ever was one, the cocktail of the movie. Like, I think of this cocktail as synonymous with the Big Lebowski. Mm-hmm. I can't think of one without thinking of the other. Right, they're like... Uh, they're, you know, it's two peas in a pod. It's, yeah, it's a happy marriage. PB&J, yeah, exactly, Uh Pepperoni on pizza. I don't know. So I've got it actually all set in the shaker here. I've been quietly assembling it while we've been chatting. It is sneaky. The White Russian. The White Russian. And this is one of those dairy drinks. Ooh, a little bit of dairy mixed with alcohol. Mm -hmm. Lovely. It's dangerous. So I'll give you the recipe really quickly. It's two ounces of vodka, one ounce of Kahlua, which is a coffee and rum liqueur. And you, you've even if you've never had Kahlua, you can kind of guess what a coffee rum liqueur is going to taste like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you've got one ounce of heavy cream or half and half, you know, whatever you've got on hand. If it's milky and thick, it'll work. And then I actually added as a little kind of bit of flair to this, bonus. Uh, uh, several dashes of embitterment chocolate bitters. Oh, just beautiful! To really kind of kick it up it, a notch. Yeah, it take it to the next level. I love it. Yeah. And so um, let me talk about some some things you need to know about this. One, it's a shaken cocktail. You shake this all up, and you'll notice that the there's no citrus in it, and that is because if you put citrus in a uh, dairy cocktail, it's going to curdle the shit out of it. So mm-hmm. don't do that. Don't try it. No, we don't want that. No. Uh, so it's 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 creamy. It's very easy to drink. It's not super healthy for you. It's not something that you want to like make your everyday cocktail, which is part of the hyperbole of the fact that this dude is just constantly making these throughout the movie. I think I saw something where there were like five of these made throughout the course of the movie. It's probably also not a cocktail you want to have more than probably not more than one of and you may even the man may not even want to finish it let alone have several in you know in a day in a sitting yeah so here we go i'm gonna shake it up real fast all right all right so that's that's well shaken and and yeah actually so with this cocktail you usually see it served on the rocks um, so you basically kind of almost serve it straight out of the shaker into the rocks glass, which is, is rarely seen. Um, but for this cocktail, it kind of works. And then other things you can do for a garnish, we're not garnishing this one because we're behind mics in a living room. Uh, but if you were to serve this in a fancy way at a bar, you may consider grating some nutmeg over the top. Uh, a flamed orange peel might also not be a bad idea here. So orange and chocolate and coffee. Yeah. Um, and then one other variation that I'll kind of... Ooh, ooh. <laughs> that is thick. He's easy now. Uh, one other variation um, that I'll that I'll kind of reference is the opp- opportunity to use some other type of liqueur in place of the Kahlua. So you could use something like a Cafe Patron, 
which is the Patron Tequila kind of version of Kahlua. It's a, it's a little bit stronger, so you definitely want to watch the, want to watch the ABV. Check out the ABV on that and, and adjust the vodka down if you're if you're using a significant amount of that because otherwise it's going to be a booze bomb. And then you can also sub in things like like a Nocino, which is a, a, a dessert style kind of Italian uh, liqueur made from from walnuts. Uh, I know that uh, local producer Don Ciccio here in Washington, D.C. actually makes a couple of things that you could put in uh, uh, White Russian, something like a Nocino, or they make one that's uh, called Concerto, which is a barley and coffee liqueur, I believe. So mm-hmm. anything in that spectrum is totally appropriate to be used in the uh, White Russian. And uh, the Black Russian, which is sort of the White Russian's little brother or kind of sidekick. And I believe came first. Okay. Don't quote me on that. Got it. I believe the White Russian was born out of the Black Russian, which was essentially, uh, as far as I know, it was literally the vodka and the coffee liqueur, the the Kahlua. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was just the Black Russian. Uh, I believe that first appeared probably around halfway through the 20th century. And then the White Russian came along shortly thereafter. It said that kind of the first mention of the White Russian was, I believe, in the mid-1960s in in California, which is where, in Southern California, where the Big Lebowski actually takes place, kind of the greater Los Angeles area. And um, it was just called the White Russian because it was a a black Russian with the addition of cream, cream, Mm -hmm. basically, um, which, of course, gave it that color. Um, So thus was born the White Russian, but... You know, generally speaking, uh, it wasn't exactly a hit of a cocktail. It wasn't, it didn't become famous overnight. It wasn't something that people were just ordering with reckless abandon at at the bars or clubs or restaurants um, anywhere. It, it never really fully took off. What's well, a silly cocktail? It, it, it really is. If, you, it if you really think about it, you really look at the ingredients and, and you think about what goes into this particular cocktail, it's... It's kind of it's kind of strange. I don't know. It's I don't think it's for everybody. It doesn't not work. It's just it's just different. It, it's unexpected. I don't know. It's like it's kind of like the kid who picks all of the marshmallows out of the Lucky Charms and just eats those. <laughs> like just thought just the marshmallows analogy. for breakfast. Love it's kind of like analogy. that. It's over the top. But so let's talk about some of the the fun scenes in this movie. Oh There's God. obviously the trip, the scene where he's like kind of like flying. Oh yeah, tripping. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Just kind of, he's like flying in the sky, seemingly, you know, high as a kite or on whatever drug it is. But it's the dude very, does a lot of drugs. Does a lot. <laughs> it, it's it's a, a common occurrence throughout the film. What's your favorite? What, do you, what are a couple of your favorite quotes from the movie? There's so many. I think, uh, you know, the whole like, shut the fuck up, Donnie. That's definitely one. But then you've also just got literally, <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to sound like kind of a cop-out, but it's almost like anything Jeff Bridges says in that movie, anything the dude says, oh my gosh, it just has me rolling, I'm cracking up, it's hilarious. Uh, he has this catchphrase like, you know, the dude abides. The dude or, abides, yeah. And just whenever he's insistent to people that people call him the dude or that he's the dude just cracks me up to no end. Like, I'm the dude, man. You're dude. you're Lebowski, man. I'm I'm the dude. People call me the dude. It's just funny and like stupid stuff like that. And then Walter, 
you know, uh, um, Smokey, Walter, Smokey's his nickname, um, mm-hmm. John Goodman's character, there's several scenes where he just explodes. He just goes on these these tirades and these angry tangents where he, you know, recalls everything from his service in Vietnam, um, which is a lot of times the way it's brought up is very random, mm-hmm. to just kind of going off about the rules of a, a totally casual um, league uh, league bowling uh, circuit, you know, mm-hmm. at this bowling alley they all frequent. And so there's several times where, I mean, at one point, the, the guy literally pulls a pistol on someone uh, mm-hmm. at the bowling alley, just kind of um, contesting uh, his his score. Right. And literally... Yeah, this is a crazy act. You're you're getting a gun pulled on you at a bowling alley at just one of another member of the league, this random guy. And then, you know, the other guy eventually uh, concedes. concedes and is like, all right, whatever, I'll mark the score zero, you know, freaking lunatic. He kind of like walks off. And then all that Smokey says, because, you know, the dude and, and Donnie, Steve Buscemi's character are still looking at him. He just literally looks at them both and he's just like, it's a league game. It's it's a league game. Yeah. Puts his and holsters his pistol. It's just it's a league game. <laughs> my my favorite quote of the movie is also also from from Walter, and it's it's when it's it's near the end of the movie. The at some point, the dude and Donnie and Smokey are all in a parking lot, and the East Germans roll up on them, mm-hmm. and they basically say that there at some point there is a large sum of money, like ransom money, that is kind of rolling around at least in the background and everyone thinks everybody else has the ransom money and so the east germans think that the dude has it and, and they, he actually has a duffel bag yeah and so they think he has and they're like listen all we want is the money just give it to us and, and we'll go and you know they keep on insisting that they don't have the money and then the leader of the east Germans keeps on we will fuck you up. <laughs> I fuck you. I fuck you. I will fuck you. Yeah. Which is which is great. I mean, it really it really escalates with, with these heavy. You, you got to picture it with that heavy like German accent, and it's just oh, it's great. Oh, it's yeah. hilarious. Um, but the the part of the scene that I really love is that you see Walter. Like Walter is very ideologically opposed to these men because they don't believe in anything. He says they're, he keeps on saying they're nihilists. They're nihilists, dude. The nihilists, right? They don't, they don't have like, they don't believe in anything. And, and for somebody who is his opinion and as opinionated as Smokey is, like you, you can just see like he would not get along with them no matter what, but they're threatening him now. And so there's this, there's this amazing quote that I love <laughs> and I don't know why I like it so much. It's maybe not the funniest thing what do we said got? in the movie, but it's, it's when Donnie goes, are they going to kill us? Are they going to hurt us or something like that? And Walter just goes, no, Donnie, these men are cowards. <laughs> <laughs> and he just, he said, he like, kind of like Donnie's behind, he kind of puts his hand back and like reassures me. As goes, if he's like he, a little he's child like, or something. Yeah. Cause no, he, he's got this situation well under hand. He's just no, Donnie, these men are cowards. <laughs> and it's funny because to me, like that's where he is a character really kind of comes of his own. Yeah. Um, so then at that point, the East Germans kind of bum rush him and Smokey throws his bowling ball at one guy, hits him in the chest. Yeah, that's right. And he goes down and then the leader of the pack comes at him. And I just realized this when I was reviewing the scenes today, you might 
you'll probably like this little this little yeah, uh, what e- Easter yeah. egg that I pulled out, and it might be bullshit, but I don't think it is. No, go for it. So the leader rushes Walter, who grabs him, and they're grappling for a second, and then he bites his ear off. I don't know if I recall that, to be honest with you. He bites his ear off, and then he spits it up in the air. And the image of the ear in the air, I think, is an Easter egg callback to 2001 A Space Odyssey when the bone that the monkey throws turns into the spaceship. Oh. Because it's it's filmed in the exact exact same way. It's shot in the exact same way. I will admit, sadly, uh, and I call myself a movie buff, I've never seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, so I believe you, buddy, but I'll have to investigate for myself. It's a very very iconic moment um, that kind of uh, starts off that movie. But anyway, so that was a cool little Easter egg. That's my favorite part, just because it's like it's one of those like little intimate moments where you see a character kind of like really show their true colors. I think Michael Scott has a lot of those moments in The Office, which is why I really oh, love yeah. that. I really love that show. Oh yeah, where gotta love The Office. A ridiculous actor just like hits has that one little moment where they show you their that they're actually like a really amazing person underneath so um anything else before we move on to our our final cocktail and our final movie here right all i can really say just to sum it up and i don't mean sum up the the story really just sum up the movie is it's a movie that i will always love i have always loved since the first time i saw it another another movie that i've seen easily several times and i'm sure i'm sure the most recent time won't be the last um it's just, oh, it's classic. It's funny. It's, and it's good to watch when you're maybe not completely sober. Yeah, no, it's, you know what, frankly, folks, it's uh, it's a good one to watch with a cocktail in hand, whether it's a white Russian or something else. You pick your poison, but get a little, get a little, little something in your system and you might enjoy it a whole lot better, but yeah. it's, it's a good one. And, Helps um, you get in the spirit. Oh yeah. And I love it. Great movie. Big Lebowski. Great. So the final movie that we're going to cover here is actually a movie that's based on a book. The movie and the book are called Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Oh, you got it. And, uh, it's a book by Hunter S. Thompson. And, and I would describe this writer for folks who are unfamiliar. Crazy as cat. Somebody who is like a proto- not a proto, a a beatnik in the second generation of beatniks. So if the beatniks, uh, also known as the beat generation, were these writers in the 50s and 60s, um, like Jack Kerouac from On the Road, like Allen Ginsberg, the poet, who kind of were into experimenting with different states of consciousness, different non-Western ways of thinking, then Hunter S. Thompson is even further down the rabbit hole, completely experimenting with psychedelics. Uh, Basically, consciousness as it is, is not sufficient. And Mm -hmm. so it was all about dropping acid. In this movie and in this book, uh, which is... A lot of people think it's like, you know, and he may have he may have admitted is like quasi biographical. Yeah. Um, There's almost every drug that you can think of. Oh, my God. I mean, I, I consider myself... Uh, somebody who's not done a ton of substances, but is at least is familiar with the names of them. And there's just some stuff in here. There's even, uh, I believe, wasn't there one that was invented just for the, I think there was one that was invented just for the movie itself. Probably, yeah. I cannot recall, but I, I think so. Yeah, it sounds right. So if The Big Lebowski is silly and uh, not sober, then Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is a complete 
tr- it's almost like an acid trip. It it basically is. I would characterize it as such in in a heartbeat. It's like the perfect description. <laughs> and so in the movie, we've got actually a decent number of, of fairly famous actors. Yeah, you've got, um, well, of course, Johnny Depp in the main role. Um, Who's like the king of weird. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's been proven many times over. The king of weird, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Um, the king of weird. Johnny Depp. Um... Jerry Maguire. The are you talking about the the the, the fake sports agent or Tom Cruise? <laughs> Toby Maguire. Toby Spider Man. Spider Man. To, sorry, it? Toby Maguire. See, I told you that's how bad I am with these actors. Spider Man's in Fear and Loathing. Toby Maguire is the hitchhiker, the kid from Pleasantville. The hitchhiker that they pick up on the side of the you highway. You know, ah, you're it's, right. It's because he's blonde in the in the movie. You're right. Totally you, right. Yep. So, admittedly, it's a movie that I have not revisited per se it's a good one but i just i I simply haven't but iconic nonetheless and um i was just blanking a bit i guess we were both blanking a bit on some of the supporting cast but um it's a very very well-known movie um i can't Um, benicio del toro that's right of course is the the third element name name is on the tip of my tongue benicio del toro yes so basically they're they're these two guys are going to las vegas to cover an event they're kind of like journalists or writers of some sort or some the um they're they're recording this event they're meeting up with with somebody there who to maybe a, a filmer or something and um they're driving down the road in this red convertible and they're just already messed up on drugs yeah they're and they, all, they pick up this hitchhiker and then basically shit just goes sideways from there uh the movie is is uh a, a very very much just kind of an exploration of of how to portray various altered states of consciousness using film techniques right so you have these very famous moments where the uh, the kind of the faces of people are getting turned into wacky shapes and stuff. And so a lot of those kind of um, sensational filmmaking techniques are highlighted here. And I think that's why a lot of film people still still mention it. No, for sure. It's definitely held up. And um, I don't know if you want to preface now the cocktail that goes with it, but um, the thing that kind of the part of the movie that really... <laughs> Uh, sets into this cocktail that we're about to about to talk about is um, you know the main character Hunter S. Thompson um, that's uh, Johnny Depp's character. There's essentially kind of like a flashback scene near the beginning of the movie, like kind of at the beginning of their journey, you know, right before they hit the road. And um, Thompson's alter ego essentially is a guy by the name of. Uh, Raul Duke, Raul Duke. And again, this is Johnny Depp. And um, he's kind of, you know, um, hearkening back on this flash flashback. And he says, sitting in the Pogo Lounge of the Beverly Hills Hotel in the patio section, of course, drinking Singapore slings with mezcal on the side. So it's kind of like... And He's that's re- that's the move. That's the moment that kind of that's the inciting incident that kicked off this entire kind of bender. Yeah, exactly. and the details are filled in, right. Kind of as you go. But it all kind of started with a couple of these drinks at this hotel bar before hitting the road to Las Vegas. Right, which is in and of itself this highly stylized place. That you know they call it Sin City, right? Um, so let me tell you about the Singapore Sling. So the Singapore Sling is 
almost more outrageous. It's definitely more outrageous. It's even further kind of down that cocktail spectrum than the white Russian is in terms of, you know, the white Russian being slightly silly, a little bit, you know, a little bit wacky of a premise for a cocktail. The Singapore sling is kind of like a tiki style drink that was actually, it was invented before tiki was a thing. Um, and it was uh, invented uh, at an Asian bar in Singapore uh, by a bartender whose name I'm not even going to try to to pronounce. But uh, it's got a bunch of ingredients that you would never really see together in, in other cocktails. And not only that, but there's a bunch of different recipes flying around, a bunch of different people making claims of validity to, to various recipes for this cocktail. So it's, it's one of those cocktails. If you've, if you've spent any time studying cocktails and cocktail culture, you, you've probably run into one of those cocktails where people just don't agree on it. And it's a little bit suspect when people try and make claims to oh, the original formulation. But regardless, uh, I'm going to tell you the ingredients that we're using tonight in this one and the source for that importantly here, which is imbibe.com, which I, I find is a pretty consistent source for cocktail recipes that I like if there's any doubt. I usually like the way that they go. Uh, so that's why I use this for this recipe tonight. So this Singapore sling, and you're going to get flashbacks to like a Long Island iced tea here when I start listing these ingredients because there's a whole bunch of stuff in here. You got an ounce of gin, you got an ounce of cherry hearing, which is a cherry liqueur, which I do not have. So I substituted a Portuguese cherry liqueur, Jinja, very similar, uh, but a cherry flavored sweet cordial. Beautiful. Then we got an ounce of Benedictine, which is a lot of Benedictine. Benedictine is one of those herbal kind of very aromatically intense French liqueurs. And so you've got cherry liqueur, the gin, ounce of Benedictine, ounce of fresh lime juice, and then you've got a soda top on that. So you're supposed to shake this in a shaker and then top with two ounces of soda. And then, you know, you garnish with what almost might be considered like a tiki style garnish. So you garnish with like a pineapple wedge and a sprig of mint. Right. Um, and so it's, it's a tall drink, usually served in a Collins glass, and you're drinking it usually out of a straw. Um, but other versions of the Singapore sling involve things like pineapple juice and Cointreau and then different ratios of these things. You'll kind of notice the perfect ratio of the one ounce gin, one ounce cherry hearing, one ounce Benedictine, one ounce fresh lime juice. There's like an inherent balance in that. But then when you start throwing in some of these other ingredients and other versions, people try and tweak things like the sweetness to make it a, a you know a more balanced drink when, when you're adding those other things in there. So that's why I kind of went with this version of the Singapore sling. I think it's the most palatable. It's the least sweet and crazy that I could find out there. And the last thing that I'll add about slings is that the sling itself is a term for a cocktail that's even simpler than the cocktail itself. And so it's, it's a little bit silly that this cocktail, the Singapore sling, is called a sling when it's clearly just this uber complex and ridiculous drink. Yeah, no, so literally... Um it originally was just the name you'd give to a drink that was basically just composed of some type of spirit, albeit usually it was gin. Um, and the gin sling is a famous drink. The gin sling, and then uh, usually water and literally just a some, some type of sweetener, mm -hmm. usually um, open to interpretation, not really right. uh, spelled out. Just like something sweet, a spirit of your choice, 
usually gin and a little bit of water. So mm -hmm. like, frankly, very freaking simple um, to your point. But, and, and I don't know who to, I don't know if I can, uh, who I can, excuse me, attribute this quote to, but um, it was once said of someone who was speaking about this drink, the Singapore Sling, he said, of all the recipes published for this drink, I have never seen any two that were alike. Mm -hmm. So just again, to your point, there are so many different variations that have been created and thought up over the years, decades, I guess I should say, since the drink was first um, created in Singapore at this this hotel bar in, in Singapore. But, you know, they can include anything from various fruit juices yep. to uh uh, simple syrups to um, garnishes grenadine to is grenadine to just like sweet and sour mix like Ugh. so it's I know, right the not my thing but um, so it's just kind of interesting it's a drink that has taken on and still can take on many different forms and it's just it's just kind of funky like that yeah so definitely be careful if you're ordering this out at a bar like try and get you, a sense of what's going to be in yeah. it if you have a sensitive palate and you might uh, not like it yeah I, I guess you don't necessarily know what you're uh, what you're always going to get is yeah. what he's trying to say. I, I guess one thing that is kind of nice about that aspect of it is that it does really predict tiki in that way because the same it's the same goes for the mai tai and and so many of these tiki cocktails and then ing house made ingredients as well. Yeah, the recipes were secret. There's a lot of speculation as to to what was in them. So I think if there is an appropriate to that like abundance of various recipes out there it's that it predicts what would happen later on when tiki really came into full swing um in, in later in the 20th century so that is kind of cool but i'm going to shake this up here Right? And Love that sound. And interestingly enough, this is also kind of served on the rocks. So rarely do I find myself shaking two cocktails in an evening and not straining them. But this is one of those evenings. And I this is a ridiculous drink. So we're gonna be you're gonna be enjoying this out of a bedazzled <laughs> oversized wine glass. Oh my god. That Love my it. wife got somewhere and we never use because it's so ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous. It's great though. Let's do it. Oh, yeah. Hey, it looks good. There you go. It's a very inviting-looking drink. Sorry Vis for no visually, straw. Usually. It's visually pleasing. Yes. Uh, no straw necessary. That's okay. Mm. Ah. It's good. Is it? Is it even... Let me see that. I've yeah, been, yeah. Check it out. Check it out. Well made, sir. Well made. It's a good one. It's... What do you think? surprisingly good yeah you wouldn't necessarily think it it wouldn't necessarily be your first thought like ooh, lucky me can't wait to wrap my lips around this one um but it's it's surprisingly yeah. good actually surprisingly good right surprisingly and i'm glad good. i picked this version of it because i feel like if you threw in like pineapple juice and grenadine in there it would just it would be a little bit over the top usually people like adding grenadine to drinks like this because it turns them a pretty color mm -hmm. and i think for people who want fruity sweet drinks which i'd say that this definitely qualifies for fruity and sweet oh yeah um without going over the edge i think yeah uh, but p people who like those sorts of drinks 
uh, and who are getting them to kind of get in a festive mood, like them also to be colorful and attractive to the eye. So I, I, I like grenadine in a cocktail for that reason, because it is visually stimulating, but, uh, man, it's just a, a hit of sweetness that I usually can't justify when I'm, when I'm, you know, kind of catering to my own cocktail preferences. So, uh, even when I end up doing tiki style drinks, I tend to air towards a drier tiki than perhaps would be traditional. Uh, frankly, I would say you and me both, buddy, I, I completely agree. That's generally more my style too. And admittedly, this is maybe not even kidding, maybe the second time in my life that I've even had a Singapore sling. So this is not, uh, not a go-to of mine and I'm not terribly, uh, well versed in it, but it's, Hey, you know what? It's tasty. Gets the job it's done. It's actually it gets the job done. It's it's kind of kind of delicious. And I think part of that is just frankly due to the craftsmanship. <laughs> so thank you, Kaz. But um but yeah, no, it is a it is definitely a funky, funky drink. Absolutely. So one little kind of like local fact I want to throw in. Uh, I think we well, I think what we can do is we can kind of put a cap on the fear and loathing in, in Las Vegas and kind of say if you are the sort of person who wants to check out some experimental filmmaking techniques, if you are the kind of person who's willing to tolerate Johnny Depp for more than 30 seconds, which <laughs> I am not, I, I really have a hard time tolerating Johnny Depp as a person. Uh, I think he's got, he's, a, I think he's got a punchable face. He's, and, he's, uh, he's not for everyone and he does have a punchable face. So, uh, I don't ever expect Johnny Depp to sponsor this podcast, but <laughs> you know, if you're into Johnny Depp, if you're into that sort of thing, if that's like in your spectrum of movies, then yeah, check it out. Uh, and then if you're just really into drugs, I guess, uh, which I, I guess I'm not, I, the alcohol, I guess definitely qualifies, but maybe, uh, not into, uh, psychedelics as such. So that's what to check out if you're, if you're into those sorts of things in a movie. But I will say that there is a nice little local connection between Hunter S. Thompson and a local brewery. Is there? Yes, indeed. Do so, tell. So we've got Flying Dog based out of Frederick, Maryland. Yep, yep, yep. Very, very popular here in D.C. Very, um, very good, too, for those of you who aren't aware. Flying Dog Brewery in Frederick, Maryland, just up the road mm -hmm. outside D.C. I've been I've been there a couple times, done the tour, the tastings, all that. Kick-ass beer. Very good beer, just very on good. a side note. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I can we can vouch for it. Yeah. Check and so they have this label aesthetic, right? Like, you know, a flying dog beer when you see it because it's got this very specific type of art. And the tie in is that Ralph Stedman, who illustrated the cover of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and his, he's done all of the label work, or at least has done the initial label work for uh, Flying Dog Brewery. And it's, it fits perfectly in with the movie. And even like there's the scene with the bats in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and they're like Ralph Steadman style bats. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of, um, basically, in, in, what, in early on in, in the movie, the um, Johnny Depp's character is tripping, and he feels like he's getting attacked by bats. Right, And right. these bats are kind of stylized in the way that, that Ralph Steadman would draw them. And his drawings are very bizarre. They're, contor I would call them contorted. Oh, uh, yeah. And just very kind of reminiscent of what I would imagine a bad acid trip is like. And it's just interesting that the Flying Dog, this amazing local brewery, 
has this guy kind of like on retainer for their labels. I just, I like that fact. And, uh, and it's kind of like, it was kind of my entree to Hunter S. Thompson was like, Hey, this guy's artist does our labels. And I said, Oh, maybe I'll look into this guy a little bit more. That's so funny. You brought that up because you're absolutely right. And literally as you were saying it, it jogged my memory. I'd, I'd forgotten that little tidbit, but, um, that's part of the tour. They, they absolutely say that at the beginning of the tour, they, uh, talk about that, that really kind of fun, uh, unique connection. So yeah, I'd forgotten about that, but a true story. Well, I think at this point I'm going to continue my 30 day fast of no alcohol, which makes me no fun, but EA Holtz, I'm going to finish this sling. <laughs> Eric Holzman, thank you so much for, uh, joining us on this podcast and sharing your movie insights. Dude, it was a blast. Happy to be here. So much fun. Thanks for having me. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, color commentary by Eric Holtzman, and a little bit of movie mixology magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2018.